gonna lie, I miss having all the kids up here and the parade or charge down after we're done. And uh, I hope all of you kids are out there or watching and uh, that you uh, were able to hear that message. Jesus has called us to be fishers of men. Now, I don't know about you, but I haven't been very good at catching regular fish in my life. I've never had much luck. Catching men is also challenging because it's not just a matter of having people hear the word, but it's a matter of the heart. And so we know that God has to do his work in that. And so we keep throwing that line in the water and trust that God will do his work. So keep fishing, even if it doesn't feel like we're catching a lot. It's God's work, and so we keep throwing that line, keep throwing that net back in the water and trust that God will bring more fish, more people to himself. And I think that's a lesson for us grown-ups, not just the kids as well. I would invite you to bow with me and let's pray together as we enter God's word. Lord, we do pray that more fish would be caught. More people, boys and girls, men and women, young and old, it doesn't matter. You want them to come to you in faith. And so, Lord, I pray that each one of us would be encouraged to not stop casting our line in the water, to not stop throwing that net in, because that is what we are called to do, and that it is your work that you will draw those to yourself. And yet you use our efforts. And so, Lord, help us to simply be in line with you, to agree with your will, and to have obedient hearts to keep doing what you've asked us to do. We pray, Lord, that you would add to this church those who, are, those who are being saved. And we pray, Lord, that you would just multiply and increase our witness that the light of this church, the light of your love shining through us, would burn brighter in these days. And so now, Lord, as we open your word, as we hear from it, I ask that you would speak to our hearts through it. Through me, your servant, I pray. May the words be yours. In Jesus' name, amen. The sermon is entitled, A Kingdom Divided Cannot Stand. The year was 931 BC. King David and King Solomon are dead and buried. And now Solomon's son, Rehoboam, it's a tricky word to say, Rehoboam, has become king of Israel. Now, unlike David and Solomon before him, Rehoboam was arrogant and rash. He was eager to demonstrate his kingly power and authority over the nation of Israel. And so in 1 Kings chapter 12, we read about how he immediately upon taking the throne, he had the whole assembly of the 12 tribes of Israel approach him, and they said this to him, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put upon us, and we will serve you. Now, what they're referring to is that Solomon, for all of his wisdom, was an ambitious king. He had many building projects. And so that required enlisting the work and the labor of the people. And so this had gone on for many years. The people were tired of all of this forced labor in the king's name. And so after Solomon's death, they come to his son and say, lighten the, the yoke of this forced labor. And so Rehoboam hears the request and he says, Give me three days to deliberate. Go away. I will deliberate for three days. I will seek counsel, and then I will give you my response. And so he first seeks the counsel of the elders who had served his father Solomon. They advise him to be gracious with the people and thereby secure their loyalty. 
However, Rehoboam doesn't like that advice. He immediately rejects it out of hand, and he goes and seeks the counsel of his childhood friends, the very ones he had grown up with. They're yes-men, of course, and so they tell him exactly what he wants to hear. No, don't lighten the yoke, they say. Double it. Double down with the heavy-handed tactics. And so Rehoboam listens to these friends. He regathers the people after three days, and this is what he says to them. My father made your yoke heavy. I will make it heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. Well, needless to say, King Rehoboam's response backfires spectacularly. It's the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back. The people revolt. 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 16 tells us, And when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, look now to your own house, David. So the Israelites went home. Now this seems pretty clear that they are rejecting him, but Rehoboam isn't that quick on the draw, it would appear, because he still doesn't understand that the people have actually revolted against him with this response, that he has in fact just divided the kingdom. And so he returns to the people in an official delegation, and he sends his official who is in charge of forced labor ahead of him. Now, if you want to talk about our um, minister of labor, I think is the, the, the office, uh, this was his minister of labor, except it was a little different in those days. It was the minister of forced labor. That's how it was in the days of the kings. And so he sends him ahead of them to uh, entreat the people. The people see them coming, of course, and they gather together. And what happens next should have gotten Rehoboam's attention, as I'm sure it did. Because likely assuming that this official of forced labor was coming to do what his job title suggested, to gather more laborers for one of the king's many projects, they rose up together and stoned the official to death. King Rehoboam himself, who was likely near the rear of the delegation, the next verse says he manages to get back into his chariot and narrowly escapes receiving the same fate. So here we see that instead of ruling the whole kingdom of Israel together as one nation and ruling it you know, with a heavy-handed iron fist as he imagined, Rehoboam's first act as king only succeeded in ripping the nation in half. And so the ten northern tribes of Israel broke away and they formed a new government under King Jeroboam leaving King Rehoboam with only the two southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin remaining under his rule. And in the years that followed, the rift between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, between Jeroboam and Rehoboam, would never be healed. The epilogue to Rehoboam's life in 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 30, says this, There was continual warfare between Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Continual warfare, brother versus brother, tribe against tribe, their entire lives and reigns, and this continued on past their deaths. Israel became a kingdom divided against itself. It's just at this point in the story that one has to wonder, what is God up to here? 
After all, hadn't God promised Abraham that he would make his descendants into a great nation? And that through that nation he would bless the entire world? Hadn't God then promised David that his descendants would sit on his throne forever? And so now here they are only two generations after the death of David. Two generations into David's line. And the kingdom has already been split into two. Split in half, divided by an ugly civil war. It was many years later that another young nation also stood on the brink of an ugly civil war. It was June 18th of 1858 when a young Republican candidate for the United States Senate stood up in the Illinois State Capitol to accept his party's nomination. The speech he gave that day didn't, in fact, help him win the election to the Senate that try. He had to try again to get that uh, seat secured. But that one speech he gave that day, on June 18th of 1858, did rally Republicans across the northern states around one singular issue, and that was the issue of slavery. It has since stood the test of time as one of Abraham Lincoln's most famous speeches. In it, he opened by saying, A house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe this government cannot endure permanently half-slave and half-free. I do not expect the union to be dissolved. I do not expect the house to fall. But I do expect it will cease to be divided. It will become all one thing or all the other. Either the opponents of slavery will arrest the further spread of it, and place it where the public mind shall rest in the belief that it is in the course of ultimate extinction, or its advocates will push it forward till it shall become lawful in all the states, old as well as new, north as well as south. Now I trust that most of you know the gist of the rest of how that story unfolds. Lincoln's words proved to be prophetic, for ultimately the house did not fall, The union ceased to be divided, and the evil of slavery was finally abolished in the United States of America. But all of that was bought at a terrible price. Well over 600,000 soldiers from both North and South died in the four-year-long Civil War. Many tens of thousands more civilians died as a result. Hundreds of thousands suffered. And to this very day, more Americans died in their civil war than in all of their other wars combined, including both world wars and Vietnam. More died in their civil war than all of their other wars combined. Now, both the story of ancient Israel and the story of the American Civil War stand as a stark reminder of the deadly consequences of a kingdom or a nation becoming deeply divided against itself. Now, just in case some of you have been, I don't know, living out in a cave in the woods somewhere and you just came back to civilization and you haven't been paying attention to any of the news and you haven't turned it on or heard what's been going on, let me just tell you, just to get you up to speed, that it appears that history is repeating itself. In the United States right now, regardless of which side of the political spectrum you listen to, 
Whichever side people put themselves on, left, right, Republican, Democrat, centrist, it doesn't matter. One thing you will hear in common is this. The country is being pulled apart at the seams. I've heard that from so many different places. The country is being pulled apart at the seams. Division, deep-rooted divisions being fomented, fostered, and exploited, and it's just getting pulled apart. And it doesn't matter which side of things you are on, everyone can see it, everyone can feel it. And lest we think that we here in Canada are so different, we have our own divisions, don't we? The last federal election showed just how divided our nation has grown even between East and West. And you see, divided kingdoms are not only found in our history books, they exist in our world today. And as the old saying goes, those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Now returning to Lincoln's speech, his opening line, a house divided against itself cannot stand. These were not his own words. In fact, he was making a direct quotation of the greatest man who's ever walked this earth, the Lord Jesus. And we pick up that narrative now in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 12. I invite you to turn there with me. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 to 23, we read this. Some people brought to Jesus a man who was blind and could not talk because he had a demon in him. Jesus healed the man, and then he was able to talk and see. The crowds were so amazed that they asked, Could Jesus be the son of David? Now, don't miss this. What we just read was a direct battle between two kingdoms at war with each other. In the one corner, we have the kingdom of Satan. And in the other corner is the kingdom of God. Now, for us reading this, and for those who witnessed that incredible miracle that day, it is immediately and abundantly clear which side of this war Jesus is on. For to not only heal a a man who is blind and mute, but to cause a demon to go running. All of these things are clearly, unequivocally, a work of God, a work of the kingdom of God. And that is why the crowds that were gathered around that day were amazed and were asking, could Jesus be the son of David? Now, in in those days, the son of David, the question they were asking was their way of saying, could Jesus be the Messiah, the one that we've been waiting for? Could he be the deliverer? Now, of course, for us reading this today, And undoubtedly for the crowds even back then, the answer seemed obvious. It was a resounding, yes, he is the one. Who else could do such a powerful, miraculous thing but the Messiah? But not so fast. Not so fast, because here comes the educated religious intellectuals. They have come to set the record straight for these ignorant, unwashed masses. In verse 24, we read, When the Pharisees heard this, what did they hear? Could he be the son of David? When they heard this, they said, He forces out demons by the power of Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Did you hear that right? What? Satan is casting out Satan? That's how Jesus is doing this? They're actually accusing Jesus of being 
in league with the prince of darkness in order to do something good? How could this possibly be? Talk about a twisted and irrational logic. Though the, the healed man had been under the control of Satan and thereby physically blind and mute, when we look at those Pharisees, they were just as much under the control of Satan and thereby spiritually blind and mute. But listen now to Jesus' reply to their outlandish accusation. Verse 25, Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? Now, I don't want you to miss the historical reference that Jesus is making with his opening words. You see, those Pharisees were experts in the Mosaic law and in Israel's history. So Jesus may as well have been opening his speech by stating, as it happened in the days of Rehoboam, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. It will not of demons. Now the name Beelzebub comes from a Hebrew play on words. You see, Beelzebub sounds a lot like Beel's the Lord of the Flies. And everything he touches takes on the stench of death. His primary weapons are lies, deceit, and division. From the fall in the Garden of Eden, to Cain and Abel, to the days of Rehoboam, to the days of Abraham Lincoln, right up to what we see going on around us in our world today, Satan is the chief architect of all of the division in God's universe. Yes, there are people and, and organizations that we can point at and say it's them or it's them or it's them. But in the end, it all comes under the chief architect, the Lord of the flies, Satan himself. Jesus is in his threefold temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. He doesn't come with that right up front. No, he baits the hook. He says, like he did to Jesus, pleasure will be yours if you come down my path. It's all yours. Have pleasure. Fame will be yours if you come down my path. Power will be yours if you come down my path, if you but kneel to me. But it's all a lie. It's all a lie. That is exactly what he had been doing to that poor, blind, and mute man. He had entered his life. He had stolen his senses. He had destroyed whatever semblance of a normal life he had had, and he ultimately sought to damn that poor man's soul to hell for eternity. That is what he came to do to that man. And then Jesus comes along to that poor man in bondage, possessed by an evil spirit, blind and mute. Jesus comes along and he says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And Jesus looks at this poor man, possessed and trapped by Satan's lies and power, and he says, Satan, get out of here. Leave this man. And the man is healed. Life has come to him. Not just life in the, in the present, but life for eternity. When Jesus touches someone's life, it's not just halfway, it's all the way. This man was freed from Satan's bondage and darkness. He gave this man life abundantly in every sense of the word. 
And so when Jesus calls out the Pharisees' ridiculous accusation in verses 26 to 27, if Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive them out? Now Jesus is turning the tables. Because not only is he calling out the logical fallacy of their accusation, he's turning it around on them. Because you see, the Pharisees also claimed that they could cast out demons. And though they tried, they had very limited success, but of course they claimed that they could do it. And so Jesus is saying that if I drove out a demon and you claim to drive out a demon, aren't you admitting to doing the same thing? Because if I was doing it by the power of Satan, aren't you also driving them out by the power of Satan? And so in verse 28, Jesus continues. Obviously, this cannot be. And so he continues. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus' response makes it abundantly clear to anyone with eyes to see, with ears to hear. It is self-evident that Satan would never turn against his own forces. Only the Spirit of God could or would cast out demons. And so therefore, the only conclusion can be that the kingdom of God has come upon you. And so in answer to the people's questions, could this be the son of David? Jesus' whole response comes to this final conclusion. Decide for yourselves, but every logical arrow indicator is pointing to a resounding, yes, I am the Messiah. I am the son of David. So which side are you on? Pharisees, decide for yourselves this day, who will you serve? Which side, which kingdom are you with? Are you with the kingdom of God or are you with the kingdom of Beelzebub, the Lord of the flies? For you see, to credit the work of the Spirit of God unto Satan, to say that something that God did was actually a work of the enemy is the highest form of blasphemy, one that Jesus later goes on to say in verse 32 was the one sin that would not be forgiven in this age or in the age to come. And yet, this is exactly what the Pharisees had just done, and they didn't even realize it. They had blasphemed against the Holy Spirit, crediting to Satan the work of God. They had just sided with Satan, and they were so spiritually blind, they didn't even see it. They were operating not by the Spirit of God. They were operating by the Spirit of Antichrist, opposing God's own Messiah, claiming all the while that they had the moral high ground to come and lecture Jesus. But they were actually agents of Satan himself. And just as Rehoboam's arrogance and pride led to the fracturing of the nation and untold suffering and death as a result, so too the Pharisees' arrogance and pride not only sealed their own fate, but the fate of Israel as a nation. For we know that the consequences of their rejecting Jesus and siding with Satan and then having opportunity still to even repent of that after his resurrection and still refusing, it led to the destruction of Jerusalem, the tearing down of the temple, 
the death of most of her people, and ultimately the nation of Israel ceasing to exist for nearly 1,900 years. Jesus' words are true then and they're true today. A kingdom divided cannot stand, whether physically or spiritually. For inevitably, events must come to a head, and most often at a terrible price. The outcome will be decided one way or the other. They must become all one thing or all the other. A divided kingdom cannot remain that way indefinitely. And the choice today between the two warring kingdoms is stark and clear. For just like Rehoboam, just like the Pharisees, just like the crowds, we are confronted with a choice. Jesus confronted both them and us today with the same choice. Which side? Which side are you on? The spirit of Antichrist is alive and well in our world today, just as it was alive and well in the Pharisees of that day. John says, even now it has gone out into the world. One day it will be embodied by one man, and the enemy himself will inhabit him to confront Jesus and shake his fist at heaven. But even today, the spirit is at work, working the kingdoms of the world against the kingdom of Christ Where is it? How can we identify it? Well, ask yourselves these discerning questions. Wherever evil is called good, and good is called evil, there is the spirit of Antichrist at work. Wherever God's truth and wherever Jesus Christ's name are are treated like dirt, wherever they are put down, the truths of God are put down, you can see the spirit of Antichrist at work. And whoever sides with that spirit of Antichrist are siding with the enemy of God. There's an old saying that goes, if you're sitting on the fence, remember that Satan owns the fence. So my friends, if we don't decide, if we don't make the choice to be on the side of Jesus, to be on the side of truth and the side of righteousness, then by default... By default, we are deciding to be on the side of God's enemy, the side of Satan, the side of Antichrist, the side of deception, the side of wickedness. For as Jesus said, if we don't gather together with Jesus, then we will be scattered by the enemy. If we do not gather with him, we will be scattered by the enemy, for that is what he does. And this decision that we are confronted with, which side are you on? Which side will you choose? It will determine whether we first find peace with God the Father through Jesus Christ, or if in our own arrogance and blindness we fall prey, like the Pharisees did, to Satan's deception and are destroyed along with him. Our choice will either unite us with God or against God. There is no middle ground. Remember that it is always much easier and faster to tear down and destroy than it is to build up and restore. For in verse 30, as Jesus said, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Whoever is not with me is against me. Are we with Jesus today? Are we with him Are we building with him? Are we advancing the kingdom with him? 
we look around and we see things being torn down in our world. And we remember that the enemy is an expert. Remember what Jesus said of him. He comes to destroy, to tear down, to divide. And it's always faster and easier to destroy something than it is to build something, isn't it? We've all built something before, and it can take a long time. I once spent hours and hours building a model airplane, Avril Arrow. It was the pride, my pride and joy. I don't know how many hours. It would make me weep if I told you how many hours I put into building this model airplane. And it sat on my desk in my office. And then in one afternoon, in the span of minutes, my young nieces and nephews came along. And after they left, I went back upstairs and I looked at that Avro arrow in tiny pieces. And I nearly cried. It didn't take long at all for it to be destroyed. And all of the hours I had put in to build it, We see that happening in our world. In short order, lives being extinguished. Just like that, snuffed out. Cities can burn and nations can disintegrate from within. In short order. And if left to only our own abilities, that will be our fate. But listen, my friends. What Jesus did for that demon-possessed, blind, and mute man is a picture of what he yet has the power to do for our entire world. For Jesus came to earth to deliver us from the snares of Satan, to heal our blind eyes, to put God's truth in our mouths, to heal our brokenness, to mend our divisions, and to restore us to unity and oneness with God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so now the final question. If you have chosen to side with Jesus and the kingdom of God, How do we respond to those who, like the Pharisees, are on the other side, who have sided with Satan, those who are still actively being deceived, whether by ignorance or by willful choice? Well, let's look at Jesus' example of how he responded. Number one, be discerning. Be discerning. The opening exchange starts like this. It says, Jesus knowing their thoughts. Now, I wish I could read people's thoughts, although I'm sure if I could actually, I'd probably wish I could take it back because you probably don't want to read people's thoughts most of the time. But Jesus had the ability, the Son of God, to read people's thoughts. Talk about the ultimate, you know, discernment. However, though we can't do that exactly the same as Jesus could, with the help of the Holy Spirit, we can learn to be discerning. We can learn to discern where someone is coming from. Is this person who's coming at me asking questions, uh, maybe making accusations, are they genuinely seeking, as the crowds were who asked, could this be the son of David? Or were they only coming in a spirit of hostility, coming only to attack and to tear down, as the Pharisees were? If we can learn to discern where people are coming from and respond accordingly, this is a great advantage in how we engage the world around us. So be discerning. Exercise that. Number two, use reason and logic. Now, the Pharisees came at him with a completely unreasonable, illogical attack. Satan is casting out Satan. And so Jesus actually uses reason and logic to point out the fallacy of their accusation. Oftentimes, we are confronted with completely irrational, illogical arguments, and it can feel like you're banging your head against a wall trying to use logic to explain away illogic. But don't stop doing it for that reason. Because logic and truth and reason 
are on the side of God. God is the one who has given truth. God is the one who has given us minds that certain things make sense a certain way. Two plus two does equal four. That is how God has ordered this world. It is an orderly world. And so we can use order and logic and reason speaking truth against error and falsehoods. And this leads us to our third response that we see from Jesus. He used logic and reason. And thirdly, we must speak the truth. Speak the truth. All too often, I think, Christians, we allow ourselves to get intimidated or bullied into silence. We don't agree with what's going on around us, but the voices are so loud that we just zip it and we don't say anything ever because we don't want to get in the crosshairs. Now, I will say there is a time for silence. There is great wisdom in silence. Jesus also said, don't cast your pearls before the swine. That's where discernment comes in. Where do we speak and where do we be silent? But there is, as Jesus pointed out, a time to speak. There is a time to voice the truth clearly. And though you may not see it, when Jesus spoke the truth to the Pharisees that day, he was speaking the truth in love. Because that's the only way Jesus could speak the truth. Everything he did was perfect. And so when he spoke the truth, even if it was confronting them in their faces, it was still done in love. And so too, we must speak the truth in love, even if the truth is accused of being hatred. The truth is always in love when we have it from the Spirit of God, speaking truth into the lies of the enemy. Speak the truth in love. And now finally, show mercy. Show mercy. Now in this exchange and in others, we see that Jesus was much more harsh with the Pharisees than with almost anyone else. But even in this exchange, we see that he does not condemn them entirely, though he had every right to do so. As the Son of God, he had all authority to right then and there judge and condemn and cast away these Pharisees forever. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he mercifully engages them with the truth and he presents them with the opportunity to still side with him. He left the door open. There are more than enough harsh voices of accusation and judgment and shouting going on in our world right now. So as followers of Christ, may we look for ways to show mercy to everyone. In the wake of the riots in Minneapolis last week, I was incredibly encouraged to see that neighborhood churches had banded together to quietly and without any fanfare come into the aftermath and begin cleaning everything up. They came to the aid of many of the store owners whose stores had been damaged and looted. They started a a food drive that filled a whole street with groceries for all of the people that had been directly affected in that neighborhood. And of course, you probably didn't see that news story on the 6 o'clock news or on the front page of any headlines. Stories like that just don't get any fanfare. But I believe it's the story and the stories that the angels in heaven will be rejoicing over around God's throne. Because that's the work of the kingdom. We don't announce it with fanfare but we show mercy. We come in even where the enemy has gone and rampaged and and left destruction in its wake. As agents of the kingdom of heaven, we come in and we be the hand that binds the wounds. We bring the food that feeds the hungry. And we do it all in the name of Jesus, speaking his love to those who have been wounded so deeply. 
And so may we choose to show mercy, even and especially to the very ones who seem most hostile to the truth. Forget this, even those Pharisees were in desperate need of God's mercy, and yes, Jesus had come to seek and to save them. Dr. Fred Craddock tells a story about a family that is out for a leisurely drive on a Sunday afternoon. And suddenly the two children in the back begin to cry out, Daddy, Daddy, stop the car. There's a kitten back there on the side of the road. And the father replies, So there's a kitten back there on the side of the road. We're having a drive. And on he drove. But Daddy, Daddy, it's all alone. You must stop. You must turn around. You have to pick it up. I don't have to stop and pick it up. But Daddy, if you don't, it will die. Well, then it will just have to die. It's none of our business. We're on a drive. We don't have room for another animal. We have a zoo already in the house. No more animals. But Daddy, are you just going to let it die? And finally, the mother turns to her husband and says, Dear, you'll have to stop. So with a deep sigh... He stops, he turns the car around, he returns to the spot, he pulls over to the side of the road, he walks over, and he reaches down to pick up that little kitten who is just skin and bones, sore-eyed, full of fleas. And as he reaches down to pick up that kitten, with its last bit of energy and strength, it hisses at him, lashes out and claws his hand, causing it to begin bleeding. Well, now thoroughly unimpressed, he picked that kitten up by the scruff of the neck. He carried it back over to the car, held it up for the kids and said, don't touch it, it's probably got leprosy. Well, in it goes, those kids don't care. They are so overjoyed to have this kitten. The kids take it home, they wash it, they give it several baths, they give it about a gallon of warm milk, they dote over it day after day. Several weeks pass by. Then one day the father walks into the house and he feels something rub up against his leg. He looks down and there's a cat. Is that the same cat? Couldn't be. The one that he had brought home was a complete and utter mess and this one looked sleek and healthy. And so he carefully reached down his hand which still bore the faded scars of that earlier scratch. He reached down towards it. And this time rather than hissing and Lashing out, this time when the cat saw the hand, it did not bear its claws. Instead, it arched its back to receive the caress. But there could be no mistake. It was the same cat. And as he began scratching it behind the ears, it began to purr. What made the difference? It was mercy. Mercy makes the difference. We too are enemies of God, deserving wrath. We were hissing at heaven, lashing out, and when we were still enemies, Christ came and died for us. So remember, my friends, when the hand of heaven reaches out towards us in mercy, it bears the scars of those nails. We didn't deserve it. That cat on the side of the road didn't deserve it. That 
poor, demon-possessed man didn't deserve it. The Pharisees certainly didn't deserve it. But God, in his great love and mercy, reached out towards us. He forgave us. And he welcomed us into his family and into his kingdom. So now as children of the king, he sends us out as agents of mercy. So in this divided and angry and hurting world, may we as the children of the king, may we be the agents of truth and peace and love and forgiveness. May we, like our father, reach out a hand of mercy and help bring God's healing to our fractured world. Amen. Lord Jesus, we acknowledge today that we were not worthy or deserving of your hand of mercy stretched out on Calvary's cross. And yet today, your hands still bear the scars to show that though we were not deserving, because of your great love, you were willing. You were willing to come into this broken, hate-filled world, so corrupted by Satan, that we couldn't even recognize our own Messiah when you were sent to us. And yet, Lord, we thank you that because in your, of your great love and mercy towards us, we who see the light, who choose to come on your side, just as that man all those years ago was set free, delivered from the enemy. We have been set free, delivered from the enemy. And so today we see you and our mouths declare that, yes, Jesus is Lord. And you are Lord of the nations. And to all those who reject you and resist you and rail against you, in the spirit of Antichrist, even there, Lord, you still desire that they would come to repentance and salvation through faith in you. And so, Lord, may we be the agents of mercy. Lord, may we not turn our backs on those who you have not turned your backs upon. Lord, may we be discerning in these times. Would you give us wisdom? Lord, would you help us to have boldness to speak the truth clearly? Lord, would you help us to stand firm? And most of all, Lord, would you help us to be merciful? to those who so desperately need it. We pray that in these times and in the days yet to come, bind us together in your love, in your grace, and in your power, that we could be agents of the kingdom to advance your agenda, Lord, the agenda of love into this broken world that is so desperately in need of it. Bless each one, Lord, in each of our missions as we go out today. Bless us and our families, and bless this, your church family. For the good of those around us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.